So if you recall, we are currently in this section of Romans that covers chapters 9 through 11. I mean, we're, we're going through the whole book, right? But in the section that we're in, it's chapters 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with issues regarding the nation of Israel. And I just realized I, I need these. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been dealing with the message of the gospel, walking the Roman believers through the process of salvation. And we've seen that for all these chapters that we've been in. Going from being wretched sinners to being justified through faith to being sanctified through the new life that the believer has in Christ and ultimately in the future to being glorified in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. We've seen that entire process. That's what Paul has been presenting here to these predominantly Gentile believers in this Roman church. But as we come to this section that started in chapter 9, the question has to be asked, what about Israel? What about the Jews? If salvation has been offered to and accepted by the Gentiles now, what does that mean for the nation of Israel? The nation whom Christ first came to, the nation whom God has bestowed all these blessings and promises upon, the nation whom God sovereignly chose as his very own, what about them? Well, it's to answer that question that Paul writes these three chapters in the middle of the book of Romans, where we have God's plan for Israel explained to us. If it sometimes appears to us today, and it sometimes appears to many people, that God is done with Israel, that he has abandoned them, and that he has turned his attention elsewhere, away from the people that he so clearly chose in the past. And there's little doubt that that was a thought, at least, that had crossed the minds of these believers in Rome. But it's this very issue that causes Paul to have to make the statement that he used to define this section back in verse 6 of chapter 9, where he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And there are really two statements that Paul makes here that define the sovereign plan of God for the nation of Israel. The first thing is that God's word, including all of his promises, they do not fail. And the second thing was that it was never God's intention to save every physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the Jews had a hard time understanding. Why does it seem today like God is done with Israel? We saw a glimpse of it a few weeks ago, several weeks ago now, when we looked at Paul's example when he was quoting from the book of Hosea back at the end of chapter 9. We are in a period of time today, just as we have seen so many times in the Old Testament, where Israel has been cut off by God. They are right now not considered to be his people, and in effect, he has rejected them. They are in a period of rejection. However, to fully understand what that means, we need to keep the larger picture in mind. And the larger picture tells us that this is not a permanent rejection. We know this because the same passage in Hosea that Paul was quoting from that showed us that God has rejected Israel also shows that he will restore Israel. Israel sins throughout their history. Israel sins. God disciplines them. They cry out to God and he restores them. 
And that's the pattern that God has had with Israel for thousands of years. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. They are in the middle of that same pattern today. Today, during this time that discipline is upon them, God has right now declared him to not be his people. He has turned his attention to another group of people. And that's where these Gentile believers in Rome and we come into this. In this time, God is focusing his attention on the Gentiles, offering salvation to them, offering the same gospel that he had previously offered to the Jews, that he had come to the nation of Israel to offer, and he has offered it to the Gentiles instead. Turn with me over to the book of Acts for a minute, chapter 10. I want you to see this transition made, and we're going to be in several different passages this morning, not just Romans 10. But in Acts chapter 10, I want you to see this transition made, a transition that even took the early church by surprise. The early church that started off being comprised entirely of Jewish believers, of Jews. In Acts chapter 10, we have the account of Peter, a Jew, right? We all know Peter was a Jew, being invited to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. And he's invited to come in and share the gospel. Now, in verses 9 through 16 of Acts chapter 10, prior to this invitation, we have the account where Peter falls into a trance and he sees a vision from God, a vision where he sees all the animals that to a Jew were considered to be unclean. According to the law, these were all animals that could not be eaten. But look at what happens in verse 13 of Acts chapter 10. It says, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, it says. So in his vision, he hears this voice telling him to eat. And, and that what he had always considered to be unholy, that he knew from the law that was considered unholy, God has cleansed or made holy. And the next verse says that this happens three times. It's not just once. It's three times that this happens. Now, starting in verse 17, we see that he's invited then to the house of Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, the unclean people, the Gentiles, who was directed by God to find Peter. And Peter is directed by God to accept this invitation. So we come down to verses 34 through 43. And Peter presents the household of Cornelius the gospel message, presenting it to a Gentile, something that he would not have done if God had not told him that once was unclean is now clean. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So right off the bat, what, what does Peter realize? He realizes that God is impartial. And the gospel is open to men of every nation. Keep in mind, as, as we go through our study today, that's what Peter realizes here. Now look down at verse 44, and he presents the gospel to them. And we see the response from these Gentiles. It says, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. 
for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So what we're seeing here is their response to saving faith. They heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon these believing Gentiles. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in tongues and exalt God. Now, we're not going to get into a discussion on tongues. It was different back then than it is today. But, but what happens is that that was an indication that the Holy Spirit was there. Now, if you remember, what happened to the Jews back in Acts chapter 2, 40 days after Christ ascended to heaven? The Holy Spirit came upon them, and at that point in time, they began to speak in tongues. The same thing happened to them both, Jews then, Gentiles here. And don't miss this. How do we know it was the exact same effect? How do we know? Because the reaction of those with Peter, look back at verse 45 again. All the circumcised believers, these are saved Jews, the circumcised believers, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They recognized immediately that this was the exact same thing that had happened previously. In fact, verse 46 makes it clear that the speaking in tongues was what tipped them off, and Peter recognized it as well. In the next chapter, chapter 11, he tells his brethren back in Jerusalem the same thing. In fact, in chapter 11, Peter has to go and talk to the Jews in Jerusalem because they're asking him, why did you go to the Gentiles? Why did, why did you think this was okay to do? Well, in verse 15 of Acts 11, he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And then down a couple of verses to their response, it says, verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, when, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God had turned his attention and offered the gospel, salvation, to the Gentiles. He was now offering the message of salvation to those who before had always been considered to be unclean. So there in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we see this transition take place. The gospel now being offered to Gentiles as well. Now, is this a change in God's plan? Not at all. This was always a part of the plan, a part of his magnificently glorious and sovereign plan. And we'll see that clearly as we get further into this section, but down, especially as we get into chapter 11. But chapter 9 of Romans dealt primarily with the sovereign plan of God, the sovereignty of God with God's choice and how he chose to save some, but not all, of the nation of Israel. And he chose to save some of the Gentiles as well. Salvation is a matter of God's choice. Anyone who is saved is saved because God has chosen them for salvation, has chosen to show mercy to them. But as we've talked about, there is also an element of man's responsibility that we can't deny. And that's what we're seeing starting at the end of chapter 9 and now coming into chapter 10, which is where 
we are now. In chapter 10, we're seeing how Israel has failed in their responsibility to respond to God's revelation of the gospel and faith. They have taken the law, what God had revealed before, and instead of recognizing their sin and their need to call out to God for salvation, which is what the law was there for, they took it and they made the law into a system of works. In effect, trying to create their own version or their own way to obtain righteousness. And that was never a part of the plan. That was never what the law was for, and they should have known that. They should have never, that should have never been an issue for them, but it was an issue for them, and unfortunately, it still is an issue for them. Salvation has always been by faith, and it was true in the past, it's true today, and it was never been by works. The fact that God has revealed that has been true for all time. Paul uses, he used some verses in Deuteronomy to show that the message about Christ is not something that needs to be achieved or needs to be earned. You don't have to go up to heaven to find it. You don't have to search the depths of the sea to discover God's plan for salvation. Why? Because the gospel is as close as your mouth and your heart, he says. And that was his point in verse 8 of Romans chapter 10, where he said, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. It is the word of faith. That's the gospel that he's talking about there. The one that Paul and the apostles are preaching. It is near. It is not something that has to be deciphered or discovered. It is near. It is available to all and we really see this combining the idea of the gospel being received by faith. It's not just the word of the gospel, but it is the word of faith. It is something that we receive in faith. Now, what Paul is going to do next, and this brings us to our section where we left off last time, which we got through verse 8 last time. But what he's going to do next is he's going to take us through this word of faith. The way and the way in which it saves those whom God has shown mercy to. And that's why verse 9 starts the way that it does. If you look at verse 9 with me, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it starts with that little word that, right? So we're breaking into a sentence. It continues on from what he was saying in verse 8. This is what the message is. The word of faith which Paul is preaching. If you confess and believe you will be saved. It's a matter of confessing. It's a matter of believing. And these two different, and these two things, we ask ourselves, are these two different things that we have to do? And the answer is no. We're going to see that this is really the same aspect. One is an internal thing. The other is external, but it's the same action. These are the tools, if you will, used for salvation. Verse 8 told us that the word is in our heart and in our mouth. He was quoting that passage from Deuteronomy chapter 30. But there is a closeness to it. It's right there, and it cannot be any closer to us. It's like when we use the phrase, it's right on the tip of my tongue. It's right there for me. There's that closeness to it. 
You don't have to go somewhere to find it. It's as close as it could possibly be. So now Paul is going to elaborate on this concept of the the mouth and the heart to show how these two tools are used in conjunction. And let's look at each of them. First, we're going to see the confession. And this means expressing something. It's a declaration of something we know, a declaration of our faith. There is a verbal agreement and assent concerning Jesus Christ for those who believe in him. Now, don't confuse this word confession. Right? We hear confession sometimes, and we think of, we think of Catholic confession, right? Where, where we think of somebody that goes to a priest in confidence, and we tell them, you know, tell them their sins or whatever. That's not the confession that he's talking about here. This is talking to other people about your faith in Christ. This is talking to other people about who Jesus Christ is, what he has done in your life. Faith in Christ is not meant to be something that we do secretly or that is a secret about us. It's not meant to be close to the vest. It's, something, it's not meant to be something that I just keep to myself while I believed in Christ and now I don't ever want to tell anybody about it. That's not what faith is. When a person is saved, when a person is truly saved, there is confession of what has taken place, what will happen in their life. We see that in baptism, right? That's the first place that you you see this, right? Baptism, first of all, is a public declaration of someone's faith. I've believed and now I want to tell people. I want to be baptized. I want to make a public declaration that I'm saved. We see this aspect in the Great Commission, right? Going out into all the world to what? Make disciples. That's sharing our testimony. That's sharing the gospel that has changed our life and making that same message known to others. It's our mouths that express what has taken place in our hearts, what is truly dear to us. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples in the presence of the crowds, 12 verse 8, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Confessing before men. Agreeing with God before the rest of the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is presented as an action of one who belongs to God. One whom the Son of Man will confess before the angels. This is someone who's saved. Another passage where we see this, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be turning to quite a few passages today, but I'm not going to make you turn to every one of them. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In this passage, Paul talks about Timothy making this good confession. It's an outpouring of the calling that he received. It was a public confession of his salvation. Timothy had done what? He had made his confession in the presence of many witnesses. The Apostle John, in in chapter 4 of his first epistle, verse 14, says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John's entire letter, that first epistle of John, is a letter showing evidence of true saving faith, of being a genuine Christian. What does it mean to really be a Christian? 
There is no such thing as a Christian who does not belong to God, who does not abide with God. And, of, and one of the telling characteristics of someone who abides with God, there is confession. He, he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. We're talking about the expression of what's dear to us, of what's in our hearts. You know, we, we, we see this with other aspects, right? Some of us are very involved and very, very care a lot about politics. So what do we do? We talk about politics. Some of us are very involved with sports teams, right? What would, what would we do if this year the Huskers win the national championship in, in January? Do you think we'd talk about it? Some of us would. Some of us maybe aren't Husker fans, but some of us would talk about that, right? Because that is something that is like, we would have to confess that. We would have to get that out of us. That's what we're talking about here. It's, it's having that belief means that we have to express that. How do you know if I'm saved? How do any of us know in this room if any of us are saved? You only know my faith in Christ by my confession. The only way that you know what I believe in my heart is if I confess it before you, if I tell you about it, if I declare it to you. That's really the only way that you know if I believe. So that's the importance of confession that we have here in Romans 10.9. It's not an act that we do to obtain salvation, or a specific phrase that we have to utter in order to be saved, it's an outpouring of the work of God that he has accomplished in our hearts. Now, what is the content of this confession, right? So we talk about Christ, but what is the content of this confession? What is it about Christ that we do talk about? What does he say it includes here? That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our Lord. This is a very important discussion here. This is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The word for Lord here is the word kurios. It's the Greek translation of, or in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint. This word is used over 6,000 times to translate Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name for God. In the New Testament, it's a declaration of Jesus' deity. Why is this name used for God? What is its significance? Confessing someone as Lord denotes an attitude of subservience. He is the one to whom we submit, to the one to whom we obey. Confessing him as Lord is declaring that he is the one to whom we lay our lives before in total submission. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I know Jesus. I know that guy. He's my buddy. He's a good dude, right? That's what some people would say. Well, that's, I, I believe in Jesus. He's just a good guy. But it's not that. It's recognizing the complete and total authority that Christ has in our lives. How can people say that, that we can experience the salvation of God without giving our lives over to him in submission. Where in the Bible do we find that? We don't find that. You don't find that in Scripture. That passage doesn't exist. What does exist? What do we find? We see passages like Luke chapter 6, where Jesus tells the multitude in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What's his point there? 
There is an assumption that if you call someone Lord, that you will do what your Lord says. By definition, the Lord is one whom you obey. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. I told you we turned to a few passages. We were already in Acts, I guess. We're going to get to take advantage a little bit today of our building blocks that we've talked about through Romans as we've built a lot of this stuff previously and seen a lot of these things already. But if you look down at verse 17 of Romans chapter 6, we've already talked about some of this. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul is talking about living a saved life here. And how does he define it? How does he put it? You became obedient. You went from serving and obeying one master, sin, to being the servant of another master, righteousness. And from all that we've seen in Romans, where is righteousness found? The only place righteousness is found? It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ. There are no neutral people. We've talked about that before. The Bible doesn't recognize someone who has been set free from sin, but is then under no obligation to anyone. I'm not under obligation to sin anymore, but I'm also not under obligation to God. That's a foreign concept. That type of person does not exist. You have either not believed and are still under the control and domination of sin, or you have believed and you are now under the control and domination of of righteousness. It's either one or the other. A believer is one who obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. Down in verse 22, that same chapter, chapter 6. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we put this together with what we just read in verses 17 and 18, we see that being enslaved to righteousness and enslaved to God are really one and the same thing. He used one term in those verses. He uses the other term here. The point is that there's no difference between being enslaved to righteousness and being enslaved to God. It's through this relationship that we derive our benefits, sanctification and eternal life, what kind of eternal life is it? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's our Lord. It is this relationship that defines who we are now. Flip over to chapter 8 of Romans. Here we see one of the key differences between an unbeliever and a believer. If you look at verse 7. Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The fleshly person, the person who is still lost in their sins, is hostile towards God, and he doesn't subject himself to the law or the authority of God. Not even able to do that. 
The unbeliever cannot subject himself to God. That is one of the key distinctions. A believer can and does subject himself to God. An unbeliever can't and doesn't subject himself to God. That is one of the key differences in life before and after a person has been justified. Another passage. Turn over with me to Philippians. Second chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about Christ coming to earth, emptying himself, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Look at what it says down in verse 9. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 9 tells us that God the Father has exalted the Son and bestowed on Him the name above every name. And why did He do that? What was the purpose of giving Him that name? So that every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will what? Confess him as Lord. Jesus Christ has been highly exalted by God the Father so that he will be worshipped and obeyed and confessed as Lord of all. He is Lord of all. We realize that. He is Lord of both believers and unbelievers. I hope we all realize that. The difference is that believers recognize and confess him as Lord today. Unbelievers will not recognize and confess him as Lord until it's too late. And the judgment of hell has already come upon them. That's when they will finally realize that he is Lord. So you see the point here. Believers confess him as Lord. And this confession isn't just lip service. And it's not just something we say, it's an acknowledgement that we live a life of obedience to Him. So here in Romans chapter 10, we see that this isn't just a simple statement that we need to make. Okay, yeah, I know He's Lord. Okay, sure, now what? No, it's proclaiming publicly before others, before everyone, to anyone that will listen, that you have submitted your entire life to Him and obey Him in service. No longer serving yourself, but now living a life of obedience to the one who saved you and made you His very own. That's what this little phrase entails. It looks easy at first. We skip over it, right? Okay, Jesus is Lord. But when you stop to think about all that that means, there's quite a cost involved here. Okay, so that's the first phrase in the first verse that we have today. And again, I can't see the clock, so I don't know what time it is right now. Uh, let's see here. Okay, all right. So we've gotten through a little bit. We, we will get through a few more verses here. But that's the first phrase. But Paul says other stuff here. What else does verse 9 tell us is true of salvation? He says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Here is the inward aspect of what it is that we're confessing. And this is the belief. The heart is our inner man. This is a faith 
that encompasses my inner being. This is not a superficial acknowledgement of something. This is a belief that I hold to be true and dear. We sometimes hear and uh, hear something and believe it simply because somebody tells it to us, right? We take our car in to the mechanic, and the mechanic says, oh, you need a new air filter. Okay, throw an air filter in there. Well, I believe it in a sense. Let's get it taken care of, but I don't know. I, I don't know all the dynamics of whether the air filter really needs to be changed right now or not, but it's like I just, I just acknowledge it because he said that. But if a mechanic says to me, well, you know, I noticed that you have a, a, a Jesus sticker on your car, or I saw a bulletin in, inside your car for a church. I just want you to know that I, Jesus wasn't really God. Jesus was just a man that came and died. Well, wait a minute. I'm not going to believe my mechanic after he says that. I'm going to get into a discussion with him on what that means, what that entails, what he thinks about that. Why? Because that's not something that I just take at face value. That's something that I believe in my heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth to die for my sins and who now lives sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That is something I believe in my heart. That's not a superficial belief. That's a wholehearted belief. That's the kind of belief that we're talking about here. Now, what did we see the Jews doing? when we talked about this earlier in the chapter. The Jews also had a belief in something. They put their faith in something, and it was a heartfelt belief. But the problem that the Jews had was that it wasn't something of real substance. They believed that the law could make them righteous. They believed they had faith, but it was faith from ignorance. It was a faith in the wrong thing. What are we to put our faith in? What are we to believe? It says that God raised him from the dead. We are to believe in the work of God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, why? What is the significance of the resurrection? Why doesn't it say we believe in his death on the cross? Why doesn't it say, well, we believe that he died for our sins? It's because that doesn't encompass it all. If you look back at Romans chapter 4, at verse 25... Back then it said that he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. His death was essential to provide atonement for sin. There's no doubt about that. But it was his resurrection that made justification possible. The resurrection of Christ is what proves all the rest of his work in salvation, in providing redemption to the lost. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn over there with me. The great chapter on the resurrection. Look down at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says here, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Then he says down in verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Without the, resur without the resurrection, 
our faith is vain. The gospel message itself is empty. Our faith is worthless, and we are still in our sins. What good is that? Without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope of resurrection to glory, which is what Paul talked about in detail in Romans chapter 8, that hope that we are anxiously awaiting. If there is no hope of resurrection, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Why? Because we'd be wasting our time, and there would really be no hope that we would have. But Paul goes on to show us that there is hope. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Christ is essential to the work of salvation. By believing it in our hearts, we are allowing that truth to consume us, to permeate us. We believe in his resurrection in our hearts, and we confess him as Lord with our mouths. So what is the outcome of confessing and believing? He says at the end of verse 9, you will be saved. Faith in his death, burial, and resurrection resulting in a life changed to obedience and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, that is salvation. That is the saved life of the Christian, where we will not experience the judgment of his wrath and the condemnation that is to come for those who do not believe. We will not go through that. So we come to verse 10. I told you we'd get to more than just one verse. We come to verse 10. Paul goes on with further emphasis on this. In fact, he kind of reiterates this here. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Once again, we see here two aspects of the same thing. We just have them in a different order this time. He has has the mirror image here, with the emphasis being around the fact of our salvation. You may remember from lessons in the past, this is free, this is a nerdy thing, I tell you, about the chiasmus. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but the chiasmus comes from the Greek letter that looks like the X, and so it's it's just a tool that is used in literature sometimes. Paul uses it quite a bit, where he says something, and then he repeats it in the opposite order. So if you say, you say, mouth and heart, then you say heart and mouth, and then you can connect those and you get an X. Anyway, that's free. Um, but that's what he's doing here. He's employing this, this chiasmus structure here. But really what this shows is that these things are interchangeable. They're a package. Confessing and believing, believing and confessing. It's all part of the same thing. What we believe in our hearts can only be made known by what we say, and what we say comes from within our hearts. Here we have two results. But again, they can't be separated. If we are declared to be righteous, we are saved. And if we are saved, we have been declared to be righteous. There is no distinction. There is no such thing as an unrighteous saved person. And there is no such thing as a righteous unsaved person. When I cry out to God, Lord, Lord, and it truly comes from what I believe in my heart... It's an expression of that belief. It's an expression of the gift that he's given me of salvation, having declared me to be righteous before him. That's what we're seeing here. 
Just as you cannot separate righteousness from salvation, you cannot separate out confessing from believing. The Bible knows nothing of a believer, one who has truly believed in the gospel, who does not confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Now we have to understand that there are times where people confess him as Lord. There are times that people call him Lord, but they're not always genuine. Jesus himself gives us that chilling reminder in Matthew chapter 7, where he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Here we see Jesus declaring that there will be people who call him Lord, but have never really submitted to him as their Lord. And that's what we talked about here in verse 9. The the sign of the true believer is the one who who not only calls him Lord, but proves through his words and his actions that he has submitted to him as Lord of his life. We confess Him with our mouths, but one who has truly believed in Him as their Lord and Savior will live a life for Him, will live in obedience and submission to Him. What about the rest? He says He never knew them. He never chose them. They never belonged to Him. They might make a confession with their mouths, but that's not accompanied by true belief. And that's that's why the confession and the belief are inseparable. Now, in the next three verses, we can try to get through three more verses. Again, I can't see the clock, so I'm just... If you all start leaving, then I'll know that I'm out of time, okay? (laughs) But in the next three verses, Paul is going to explain these truths and show how they apply to everyone. Once again, showing some more Old Testament quotes. So he starts in verse 11, quoting again from Isaiah 28. Really the same quote he used back in chapter 9, verse 33. Where he says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And this is the point that Paul is trying to make, that salvation is by faith and that anyone who believes in him, who has a true belief in their heart, submitting to him as Lord of their life, will be saved. There is no failure on God's part. There is no one who comes to him in true saving faith that he says, oh, I'm going to reject you. He doesn't do that. And we talked about this a little last time, back up in verse 4 of chapter 10, where it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. True righteousness is obtained only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And once again, everyone who believes will experience this righteousness. Just as here, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It is truly a gift that is available to all, to anyone who will receive it in faith. This is what Paul goes on to make absolutely clear then in verse 12, where he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Starts off mentioning that there is no distinction here between Jew and Greek. His point here is to show that in salvation, anyone can believe regardless of their nationality or regardless of who they are, they can believe. 
Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, plays no part in whether someone can accept that gift that God has offered. He's used this concept of there being no distinction between Jews and Greeks before in the book, back in Romans chapter 1. Our, our, our theme verses for the entire letter, Romans 1.16, talks about the, uh, the he, re- he revealed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verse 17, he goes on to talk about how that is by faith that righteousness is obtained through the gospel. And then the book just builds on those verses from there. Look back with me again to, to chapter 3. Quickly here. Yeah. If you remember, the rest of chapter 1 talks about the condemnation of all men. In chapter 2, he starts to talk about the Jews and the Greeks are all the same in their sin. But if you get to chapter 3 and look at verse 9, he says, What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Right? They're, they're all under sin. In their condemnation, there, there is no partiality. All are sinners, all under sin. In verse 10, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. But down in verse 21 of the same chapter then, 21 is where we start to see the glimmer of hope, right? There's hope for all those that are condemned, hope that God has provided. What does he say in verse 21? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So just as there is no distinction of those who are under sin, all are under sin, There is no distinction for anyone who believes. Anyone who is saved is saved by faith. And this would apply to Jews as well as to Greeks. They are all saved the exact same way. Now, this is an important thing to look at. So I want to go over to Galatians chapter 3 as well, because Galatians 3 talks about this same thing. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is also talking about the law being a tutor to Christ leading us to the faith that we must place in him for salvation. And that's kind of what we talked about in our last study as well, talking about the law being a shadow of Christ, a representation of him, leading up to him. But he says in verse 28 of Galatians chapter 3, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now once again, he's pointing out here that there is no distinction. When talking about those who belong to Christ, there is no distinction. It doesn't matter who you are, just like he's talking about in verse 12 of Romans 10. You become Abraham's descendants, just like we talked about back in chapter 4 of Romans. We talked about that there. Now this concept, I bring this up, and I wanted us to see this here in Galatians, because this concept causes confusions, both here in Galatians 3 and in Romans 10, because some take this to mean something that Paul never intended it to mean. They say that this shows that since there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that means that the church is now Israel. The new Israel, and we're back to that replacement theology that we've talked about before, and we started talking about that when we started this section. 
that's taking what Paul is saying here too far. He's talking with regard to faith and salvation. But this doesn't encompass everything that has to do with Jews and Gentiles in God's plans. This is in regard to how they are saved. That means, or the means by which anyone is saved is the same for all. As an example of this, I have four kids, okay? Jenny and I have four kids. They're all grown. They're all out of the house, so to speak. Um, but they're all in their 20s. Now, I can stand up here and I can tell you that I love them all. My love for all of my kids is exactly the same. doesn't matter who they are, right? My love for them is all the same. Some are married, some are not, right? Married, single, employed, unemployed. Live under my roof, don't live under my roof. Some live here in Gretna, some in Lincoln, some in Colorado, right? Differences about them. But when it comes to my love for them, there is no distinction between any of them. Now, someone could leave here after having me said that. Someone could leave here and go out and say, did you hear what Matt said? You know what he said in Sunday school? He doesn't think there's any distinction between his sons and his daughters. He's one of those who thinks that male and female are the same. Or they might say he doesn't think that being married or unmarried matters at all. Or that there's no distinction between his married or unmarried kids. He doesn't treat them any differently. He doesn't want anything different for any of them at all. Now, if you heard what I said and then heard them say that, hopefully you'd think to yourself, that's ridiculous. That's not what he said at all. That wasn't the point that he was making. Because you all understand what I'm talking about. I was talking about how much I love my kids. What I want for them, how I would counsel each one of them in different areas of their life, that all may be completely different. I might do different things for them. I might do different things with each one of them. But with regard to my love for them, that's where I'm saying there's no distinction at all. That's like what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 10 and in Galatians 3. That when it comes to the topic of salvation by faith, there's no distinction. But that in no way means that God doesn't work with different people and with different groups in different ways. Or that he doesn't have different plans for them as his children who have all been saved by faith. There is still a distinct plan for Israel and a distinct plan for the church, even though there is only one way of salvation for both. Look again at the examples he uses in Galatians 3. He talks about neither slave nor free man. That's not Paul saying that he's calling for the end of all society or societal or cultural distinctions. He's saying that free men or slaves are all saved the same way. Neither male nor female. Regardless of what people think and say today, this isn't Paul saying that there is no difference at all between a man and a woman. There are definitely distinctions made between the roles of men and women in the Bible. But with regard to salvation, men and women are all saved the exact same way. So we need to be clear on what it is that he's laying out here. Now back in Romans 10, verse 12... How do we know this? What's the defining factor of this all being one plan, one way of salvation? 
He says, for the same Lord is Lord of all. There is only one Lord. And therefore, there is only one way of salvation. There is only one sovereign God, and he has determined that salvation is by believing in the finished work of his Son. Paul has mentioned this concept before. Back in chapter 3 again, in verse 29, he said, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. God is one. There aren't multiple gods or multiple ways of salvation. There's one, only one. He is one God and he is the Lord of all. Whether they bow to him or not, he is still the only sovereign authority. He is Lord who is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Having received salvation, we receive all the riches that he has to offer. It doesn't matter who you are, you receive all of his riches. We won't turn there, but Ephesians 1 Verses 7 and 8 talks about our redemption and forgiveness are according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes upon us. Ephesians 2.4 talks about God being rich in mercy, the great love with which He loved us. Ephesians 3.8 talks about, says that Paul was called to preach the unfathomable riches of God. Even in chapter 9 of Romans, verse 23, we saw that he makes known the riches of his glory upon those whom he prepared beforehand for glory. Being a believer in Jesus Christ has no end to the benefits that we receive as those who belong to him. The riches that he freely bestows upon us. What are, who are these riches for? All who call upon him. Salvation is available to all, to everyone who calls upon him. And he emphasizes this in verse 13 with another Old Testament quote. For he says, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Quoting from Joel chapter 2, we once again see the responsibility of man. Remember, that's this, what this chapter is really dealing with. Man's responsibility. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. This is the heart of the gospel message. There are, there are many things that this entails, many details in the salvation plan, but the concept is simple. Call upon God, believe in what he has provided as a means of salvation, and you will take part in that wonderful gift. This is a comprehensive offering to all men. Remember what we're seeing here in chapter 10. We're seeing this responsibility of man. We're seeing the responsibility of the Jews to call upon God to believe in what he has revealed. Chapter 9 told us how the Jews, how anyone is saved because of the sovereign plan of God, because he has allowed condemned sinners to come to him for salvation. Chapter 10 now, we're seeing how Israel has failed in their responsibility after being given so many advantages they have failed to accept their Messiah to believe in what God has revealed through his own son for salvation. Paul is revealing what is necessary for salvation, but his ultimate purpose in doing so is to show that Israel has failed to accept it, to fail to respond as they should have. And we'll see this in detail in our next lesson when we get to the end of the chapter.
that they need to call upon the name of the Lord. That is what everyone needs. That is responsibility that is in front of everyone. This is what's required for salvation. We know this. If we have put our faith and trust in him for salvation, if we are saved, if we have accepted the gospel, we know this. We have already done this. This is preaching to the choir. But now what? What is our responsibility as his, as his children? To preach this word of faith to others, right? Sometimes we as a church, we lose sight of this goal. We get caught up in our own little community that we don't have the focus that we need to on witnessing, on evangelizing, that we should, right? I mean, we're talking about this heartfelt knowledge that we have. We're talking about, again, I use the example. If the Huskers win the, the, the national championship next, next year, some of us, not all of us, I know some of us aren't Husker fans, but if the Huskers win the championship next year, we're going to talk to people about that, right? We won't be able to help but talk to people about that. What about our faith in Christ? What about our Lord who saved us? Do we have that same excitement in sharing him with people around us? I can't help but get out what I have in me about Jesus Christ. Is that our attitude? Is that, our, is that what we do? When it comes to the church, a lot of times we have the problem of not having the zeal that comes with our knowledge. You know, you, you, we talk about other faiths, right? You see other faiths that are out combing the neighborhoods. You see other faiths that are out telling everybody about their, their faith. You know, groups that go on missions, two-year missions or whatever. And you think, man, they have this zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. But we have the true knowledge. We need to be just as zealous. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be in your word. Once again, we pray that you would be with us as we, we leave here now, as we go into the next hour. Pray, Lord, that that would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the gospel, this word of faith. And, Lord, it is something that we have believed and entrusted and, and, and is a part of our lives as your children. And we pray, Lord, that it would be something that we just can't help but get out. We need to share it with those around us. And Lord, I just pray that, that we would be excited about that, that we would be zealous for that in all that we do. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to take what we've learned here today and use that in our lives to honor you. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.